Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. What we're talking about, and really it is, we're talking about the foundation of our lives. We're looking to examine what is really the foundation on which we're building our lives. And we saw why this is so important because we were in Hebrews chapter 12 and we saw that just as God in the Old Testament brought the children of Israel down around the base of the mountain in in Exodus chapter 19 and told Moses to prepare them and then call them out so that God could come down on them and demonstrate his power, his fire, so that the earth shook, so that they would fear him and not sin. And we saw that when they saw God on the mountain, when they saw his power and his lightning, that they ran back to their tents and they said, Moses, you go hear what God has to say and go tell us, and then we'll do what he has to say, but we don't want to do it God's way. And what we saw was God knows us. He knows how to get us to where he wants us to be. And God knew that for them to not sin, for them to obey him, for them to, to, they needed to fear him, and to fear him, they need to see him. It's not afraid of God where you run away as they did. It's a fear, a holy reverence for who God is. And then we saw in Hebrews that, that the writer of Hebrews says, but to the church, we don't go to Mount Sinai. We don't go to a mountain that shakes, but we go to a heavenly mountain, Mount Zion. We go to the, to the heavenly Jerusalem we, where the, the saints that have been rolled in heaven are, where we have Jesus, the mediator of a perfect covenant, of a new covenant that's been sealed with a blood that speaks better than the blood of, of Abel, of Cain. Excuse me, the blood of Abel. And, and we've come to a different mountain, but it's the same process as God revealing himself. Because the writer goes on to say, just as they, couldn't, shouldn't have, they should have listened to the voice that spoke when he shook the earth, so we need to listen to the voice that speaks out of heaven, which is Christ, the mediator of our covenant. Because there's going to come a time when, just as the earth shook then, everything's going to shake now. And it's not just going to be the earthly things, it's going to be the heavenly things that are going to shake. And we saw that that shaking is good because it's a separating out of what is of God and what is not of God. And we talked about the beating of a rug to get the dust out. That you can sweep a rug, which I told you I did. I swept the rug and, and then I hung it up and I hid it and I found out there was still dust particles in that rug that the, that the vacuum cleaner didn't get up. And it separated what was not of the rug from what was of the rug. And it took a shaking to do that. And so according to the Word of God, when God brings a shaking, it's for our good. It's to separate out of our lives that which has not been built in there that's of God from that which is built in there of God. So we are strong and secure for two reasons. First of all, so that we can finish our course but also Jesus is presenting to himself a church that's holy and without dust. (laughs) Where there's no dust or dirt. And so that's what we began to look at because there is a shaking, because and there's even a shaking now of things which we've always assumed were always going to be. And that, you know, we've always, the church is always going to be loved by the, by, not love, but I mean, our, what we believe is going to be, is be accepted. I grew up in a, in a nation where what, what the church believed was the general accepted moral standard. We may not believe it for the same reason, but that's changed rapidly and will change even more most likely. So things that we've trusted in, we may have trusted in just, you know, the normal flow in the course of life, we're finding out it's not going the same direction. And so we've got to go back and look at what are we standing and what are we building our life on. We looked at 2 Corinthians 13 where Paul tells the church at Corinth, you need to examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith. You need to examine yourself. And we looked at that to see, we need to examine ourselves and see what is the foundation that I am building my life on. And then we turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we got into this and we're going to pick up here today. 
This is Jesus talking to the church, to his disciples. Of course, this is the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. These are very penetrating words as we was greeting people this morning. One of our greeters said to me, he says, you know, this, these verses have always scared me. I said, they always scared me too. But this is the gospel. It's good news. But I used to be scared to go to the dentist. I used to be scared to go to the doctor, but it was good for me to go to the doctor, and it was good for me to go to the dentist, because just because I was scared of something doesn't mean it wasn't good for me to do. And so we need to go to the things and face the things because they're what are going to prepare. See, this is why we started looking at this in the beginning of of, uh, Hebrews 12, because it says God disciplines us as a father who loves his children. So we don't have to be afraid of his correction. We don't have to be afraid of his discipline because he's doing it for our good. And where we don't see how it's good, it's because we don't understand something he understands. And this is where we need to trust him. And that's why we spent time looking at that. So Jesus is summing up this message to his disciples on the mountain, and he says these words which are so penetrating, but they're what we need to hear today. Because this is what, see, and this is what we're really going to be are talking about. All of us have some idea of what God is like formed as children, formed by our, by our parents, formed by teachers, formed by life, formed by things we've read. We have images that are in us of what God is like, and in some of that's formed by what we want Him to be like, how we want Him to be. And what we're learning to do is to come to the Word of God to find out who He says Himself He is. Because that's what we need to see, not what we think. We looked at this when we were studying worship. Because we saw that Jesus says true worshipers must worship Him, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we saw the truth part was means, truth means seeing Him for who He really is. And then once we see Him for who He really is, seeing us for who we really are, and then we realize how desperately we need Jesus for who He is in our lives. We're really going back looking at kind of the same thing again, but laying it as a much deeper foundation. So this is Jesus telling us This is Jesus telling us what the requirement is. Not what I think, what you think, because I'll tell you a secret. All of us are wrong about something. None of us are right about everything, and if you think you are, that's what you're wrong about. (laughs) There's only one who's right about everything, and that's God. And He's given us His Word, and He's given us His Spirit to reveal to us what He wants us to know about Him. All right. Matthew 7, verse 21. And these are penetrating words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So it isn't just what we say. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We saw last week, we looked at that and we saw, he doesn't say, and this is what we so often read. We read it, but we don't get it. It's not what we say It's not even what we do. Because he's talking about people that call him Lord and do things for him, but that's not the issue. He says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, but it's he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, not he who does things for my Father who is in heaven. And this is critical to understand. Because so much of the church, I believe, so much of our humanness, our flesh, we want to do things for God. But we want to do what we want to do for God. 
And what Jesus is saying here, it isn't what you call me. It isn't even what you do for me. It's whether you have submitted to do the will of my Father. It's what He wants done, not I what I want to do for Him. Because what we do is we, we look at our, the intentions of our hearts. I want to serve God. I want to please God. And that's wonderful. But that's not enough. Because there are people in hell with good intentions. That's a good start. But it's not enough. Look at what he goes on to say. He, he amplifies on this. Many will say to me in that day, we saw that there's a day coming when we're going to give an account. We'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? In other words, we did many things for you. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And this is the key. You who practice lawlessness. The Greek word for lawlessness is anomia. The Greek word for law is nomos, N-O-M-O-S. And A in front means without. So this word means when we are without a law. In other words, we're not under someone's authority because when you're not under someone else's authority, you're under your own. And this is the issue in the garden. This is exactly what happened in the garden. Satan came to tempt them to take things into their hands and out of God's hands and to become their own God, to decide what was right and wrong for themselves. And of course, as we've learned, there is no such thing as being your own God. You're either under His Lordship or you're under the Lordship of the God of this world. Because if you think you're in charge of your own life, then that tells us you're under the authority of the God of this world and you're deceived because you think you're in charge of your own life. You think you're the captain of your own soul. No, you're the captive of someone else. It starts in the garden, but this is the, still the issue, and it's the issue today. Who's on the throne of my life? Who has the ultimate decision of what I do and what I don't do? And Jesus is saying here, it's not what you do for me. Because what you do for me is what you decide to do. It's whether you do what my Father's will is, whether you're submitted to His will. And when you're submitted to His will, then I know you. Then I'm Lord. And so when I left, we left last time, I left with us some questions because the challenge to us is to check ourselves. Not be condemned. God's not angry at us. He's trying to pull the covers back so that we can see where we really are so that God can work in us to bring us to where He's calling us to go, individually and as a body. This is critical that we see this because this is the foundation. And if the foundation's wrong, we looked last week, the building goes wrong because this is what Jesus now goes on to talk about. He talks about these two houses that are built. Same materials, same design, same contractor. One of them stands and the other falls in a storm. And it's already blowing out there. The wind's already starting to blow and the rain's starting to come down out in the world out there and it may well get worse. And the question is, is my life going to stand? Is this church going to stand? Is his church going to stand? And what Jesus is telling his church is that what makes it stand is the foundation that you build it on. 
And I shared with you the story last week of my grandfather, who was one of the first people in the community in South Jersey on the water to, to build this house on the water in the particular area he was in. And uh, this was back in the 50s. And, and all the people around him were pour, pour, pouring concrete slabs because it's all sand. Everything there is sand. And then they built their house on that. And my grandfather was smart enough to say, I don't think that's good enough. I mean, I'm right, by the, right at the edge of the beach. So he had the contractor take telephone poles and drive them down into the sand. And then he had the frame of the house bolted to those telephone poles. And I shared with you last year, last week, how, how in November of one year, back in the late 50s, I was a boy and woke up in the back bedroom. And I heard water, not in the front, but in the back of the house, and looked out and we were surrounded by the ocean. And by the time that hurricane was gone, everything around us was gone, and our house was still there. Because it wasn't seated, it wasn't being held in place by the sand, it was being held in place by something much deeper than the sand, something where there was something solid underneath it. The foundation on which you build anything determines how solid it will be, determines the quality of it. It's not what you see, that's the problem. It's not the part you see, but it's the critical part. And God wants us to examine what really is the foundation. What am I building my life on? And what Jesus is teaching us here is the only sure foundation, the only foundation that's been designed by the master builder of the universe is his word is the authority of his word in our life. So we ended by asking some questions of ourselves, which I'm sure you spent a lot of time thinking about during the week. And that's this. What is that word to me? For some people, many of the people in the world, and this is what our younger generations are being taught, that the Bible is just a fable, just a series of stories. In college I was taught, I went to a liberal arts college, and it was a very liberal arts college. And we had to take a two-year course on Western civilization. And one of the books we had to read, sections of the books, was the Bible. But it wasn't being read for us for spiritual value. It was being read as example of literature. It was being read for other purposes. And unfortunately, the seminaries of our day are filled with people that read the Bible, but not for its spiritual value and its spiritual impact on their lives. But they read it either as something to learn sermons from or something that's just something to be studied out there. But the point is it has no authority in their lives. There's no authority. It isn't even on the radar screen when it comes to making decisions. And then you have Christians that believe the Word of God and we have the Word of God and, and we use the Word of God and verses in it for comfort, for strength, for courage, for whatever it is we need and we, we, we are in a need and we look for the scriptures that tell us you know, that God loves us and whatever it is, we may have promise boxes and we pull them out, we may stick them on our refrigerator. You know, and it's wonderful, the Bible can be used for that, but if that's its only purpose in my life, then it's a resource that's used in my life like any other resource. And see, whatever it is to you is the only value it can be to you. So if it's just a resource to encourage you when you're discouraged, then that's all it ever can be in your life. If it's just a nice book with nice stories in it, then it's going to be like any bedtime story book. It's going to be like any story book. And then we got to last week to the point where many Christians are and where God was probably going to confront most of us, that 
that it's not just a resource. We read it regularly. We study it. We meditate on it. And we agree with it. It's called mental assent. We agree with it. We say, boy, that's right. John Wesley wrote a penetrating sermon about about so much of the church of his day. He believed, mentally agreed with the gospel, but they never received it in their heart. They agreed with it, but they never allowed it to change them. And I believe we do that with the word. We agree with it. We read it to understand it. And and that's important because that's how you get to the right level is we read it, but then we stop there. We agree with it, but then we go out and mentally function on our own the rest of the day. We don't take what it says into account in decisions we have to make, in the values that we've developed in our life. And we go deal with the world the way the world deals with the world on its own terms. Turn with me to Isaiah 66. Because we're going to really pick up today with, with what God intends His Word to be in our life. Very end. Last chapter. I've taught you before that Isaiah's ministering to Israel at a time that's very similar today because outwardly they were practicing all the things they were supposed to practice. They were doing all the things they were supposed to do, but their heart was in a very different place. Their heart was not seeking after God. God did not have the priority in their life. They weren't worshiping Him with their heart. They were worshiping Him with their outward actions. And here God is dealing with, through Isaiah, this very issue. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord God, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house you're going to build for me? In other words, what are you going to impress me with? What building are you going to build? Or let's look at this. What building of your life are you going to build? What are you going to do in your life that's going to impress God? What message can I preach that's going to impress God? <laughs> so he says, wait a minute. The earth is my footstool and heaven's my throne. This is all mine. What can you build for me that's going to impress me? So this is part of the revelation of who God really is. He's not just much better than we are. He's not just much more powerful than we are. He's absolute in everything He is. He's not just full of love. He's absolute love. He's the source of love. He's the source of life. He's the, he is truth. He's not full of truth. He doesn't tell the truth. He is truth. John 17, 17, which we'll look later on, says, My word is truth. God doesn't tell the truth. His, whatever He says, that's what truth is. Truth is defined by what God says. So He's the source of everything. He's the source of everything. So he's saying again, it's not what you do for me. It's not what you build for me. It doesn't impress me. Because I own it all. For all these things, verse 2, my hand has made, 
And all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one thing I will look. This is what gets my attention. This is what draws me. This is what, this is what, I, this is what you can do that gets my attention. On this one thing will I look. On him who is poor. That, means you don't have, that doesn't mean you don't have any money. It's poor of heart. It's what, it's what the beatitude, poor of spirit. It means you're not full of yourself. On this one thing while I look, he who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The authority of my word. Remember what his word is. It's not like your word and my word. When we give our word to somebody, we're predicting what we're going to do. We may mean it, we may not mean it, and even if we mean it, we may not be able to carry it out. So we can promise something that we don't come through on, not because we intentionally lied about it, we just don't have the ability to do it, or we forgot. So when I promise Steve I'm going to have lunch with him at a certain time, that's my prediction. I'm, but see, God's Word is not like that. God doesn't predict what's going to happen. His Word causes it to happen. He didn't say, I predict light's going to come. Oh, I hope it comes, I hope it comes, I hope it comes. He just said, let there be. And his words created whatever he said. In fact, we've talked about this before. Everything God created, he created with his words, and everything he created instantly obeys him. When Jesus spoke to the storm, it didn't debate whether it was going to respond to him or not. It obeyed him. Why? That same voice created all that substance, all that energy. The only thing God ever created that does not instantly obey him is... Why? Because he gave you and he gave me a free will, which is the right to say no to him... Why would he do that? Because the yes doesn't mean anything if it's not freely given. That's how much God desired a relationship with you that he was willing to risk losing you because if he didn't risk that, he couldn't truly have your heart. But he didn't just take the chance on that. He already had the provision for us disobeying him already in place. You who practice lawlessness. So the only foundation of the Word of God in our lives is when it has such an authority in my life that I tremble at it. I don't mean I'm afraid to open the book and read it. But it speaks to me at such a level that it affects me the same way an earthquake would affect you. You think you'd know? Have you ever ever been in an earthquake? I have. You, 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 it wasn't a major one, but it was enough to know I don't want to be in another one. I was in the 11th story of a building in, in Dayton, Ohio, in a restaurant. And we're sitting in the restaurant, and all of a sudden, the glasses are shaking, the water's shaking, and the, the floor starts to shake. And I notice people jump away from the windows, and that's when I realized what I was in. I've heard this old expression, that in an earthquake, even an atheist looks up. <laughs> And you know what? That's the only place to look. Because at that point you realize 
the ground that that building's sitting on and its foundation is not ultimately solid. The only solid place to look was, was up. And God wants His Word to have such a, an authority in our lives that it's as if it were an earthquake. It, it would, it, 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 we know it's there and we have an awesome reverence for it. And this is what we're going to begin to talk about. What, was, what does that mean? That the Word of God has the authority in my life. What does it mean? Because in almost all our cases, I would venture to say, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. It has some authority, but not the ultimate authority. And God is working with us to draw us to that place. All right, let's, let's take a quick look at an example of this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. <laughs> One of my favorite stories. Many times in the Bible, you can understand the principles through a story. That's why Jesus told parables. But this isn't a parable. This was an, an event that happened. John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jesus withdrew up to a mountain to pray. In the meantime, the disciples said, there's a crowd around here. We, you know, there's no place to eat, and they're hungry. And he said, well, you feed them. So they brought a boy's lunch to him, and Jesus blessed it, and they fed the 5,000. <clears> and then Jesus sends them out to go across the sea, the lake, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. And while he's on the mountain to pray, they're out and the, a storm comes. And Jesus goes to them. In fact, in Mark's account, it says he would have passed them by. And they're in a storm and he's out walking on the water. And we're going to pick up here. And immediately Jesus, verse 22, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, this is somewhere between three and six in the morning, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. I guess they were. <laughs> I guess I would be too. Saying, it's a ghost. Why, was, why did they say it was a ghost? Because in all their understanding, remember, this is where they made their living. They weren't neophytes when it came to, to being sailors. They were fishermen. And fish are in the sea, and you get fish by going out on the boats. So they were professional sailors as well as professional fishermen. And this is their territory. But on all the years they've been out there, all the nights they've been out there, the days they've been out there, every storm they've been out they'd never seen any man walking on the water before. So in their way of processing this in their brain, it has to be a ghost. And they're afraid, because my goodness, this is some supernatural ghost. We're out here, Jesus is up there praying, we're out here by ourselves, we're going to sink, and there's a ghost coming after us. Nice to know they were just like us. For fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Be a good cheer, don't be afraid. It's I, don't be afraid. And Peter, who was always willing to kind of step out, answered and said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. Jesus 
said the word, come. And when Peter came down out of the boat, what an incredible statement. I mean, pull it out of the Bible for a moment. Just think about this in a real-life situation. You're out on a lake in a terrible storm, and there's Jesus standing there, and he says, come on out. Come to me. All their life, the only time they were ever able to be out on that water and not drown was when they were in a boat like that. Their whole life, their security, their safety, their livelihood came by trusting in that wood that was fashioned in a form that would hold them and sustain them and keep them safe on that water And they're out on that same water in what they've learned to trust in. And they're in a storm. And in a storm, they're going to hang on even tighter to this security that they've learned to trust in. And what does Jesus say to them? Come out of that boat that's so secure that you know is so safe even though you're panicked in it. And come out and walk on the water and come to me. And remember, the water wasn't glass smooth. It's the reason why the boat's going up and down, back and forth and up and down. And water's most likely lapping over into it. And he says, come. One of them has the courage to come down out of the boat to come down out of what was so safe and secure in their thinking, out to the source of the problem, which is the wind and the waves. The only reason they're in danger of sinking is the force of that water. But Jesus says, but Jesus said, Jesus said, come. And Peter, I'd love to have seen what that was like. Because somewhere he had to put his legs over the side. There's 11 guys there watching him. Crazy Peter. And somewhere he had to decide to stop sitting on what was so, he thought was so safe and secure and step out on to what made no sense at all. Now, if he decided to do that because he wanted to, they would have called him Crazy Peter and he would have gone down fast. If you step out on your own authority. If you step out on your own will, on your own desire, on your own plans, you may get two seconds out there, but you're going to go down. What makes the only difference here, the only difference, is that Jesus said 
come. So here's what Peter does. He stops having the boat being the foundation of his safety and security and he comes down out of that safety and security to step out on the word come. Because Peter didn't walk on the water. Peter walked on the word come. The word come became the foundation of Peter's walk for a few moments. Think about what it must have taken to let go of that boat and step out on the Word because that's exactly what we're called to do. It's a nice story until we realize it applies to us also. There's things God's Word tells us to do that look like we're going to go down if we do it. such as love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you. I mean, they're not people that upset you accidentally. They picked you out and they chose to use you despitefully. And the Word says, pray for them. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'll pray for them all right. I'll pray some of those prayers David prayed in the psalm. Get them! And see, we we could be tempted to think that's okay until we realize what Jesus told His disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another, and here's the part that's so difficult, as I loved you and what's he about to do for them? Die! Die for something he didn't do wrong. To die for people that despitefully used him. And he's saying, this is my word, commandment, that you step out of everything your flesh wants to do. You step out of what you don't think you can. I can't do that. I I can't forgive them. I can't do that. But he said, see, when I look at his commandment and say, "I, I just can't do that, what am I doing? I'm taking his word and I'm reinterpreting it. And here's where it's here's where the lawlessness comes in. I take what his word says to do, whatever it may be, and then I begin to filter that through what I think I can do and don't think I can do, what I want to do and don't want to do, what I think is right or what I don't think is right. And here's the issue. The moment, the moment I start changing that word at all for me, it no longer becomes God's word and it's now my word. Everything in Peter, if he thought about it, must have told him, you can't do that. You can't walk on water. You you can't walk on water. But he chose to disregard 
what his natural training and all his experience told him, and he chose to trust the word of his master, the word of his Lord. And when he did that, he did the impossible. He walked on water. There's an old saying that when the roll call is given in heaven of those that have walked on water, it won't take long to answer. But that's not quite true because there are people that have walked on water, not maybe physical water. There are people that have done things that were impossible to do, and yet because God commanded them, they did it. That Columbine shooting years ago, where a young girl and others were just massacred for no reason at all. I was thinking of them all yesterday. And yet their father went and forgave. Forgave. People that thoughtfully, thoughtlessly, maliciously, without care, murdered his daughter. He got out of the boat of human limitations. He got out of the boat of what makes us feel who we are and safe and secure. And he stepped out on the word of God that says, forgive. This is my commandment. And because of that, lives have been changed. Supernatural things have happened. This is what a foundation is. See, the foundation doesn't determine what you can do with your life. The foundation determines what can God do in you and through you. And when we cling to our own understanding, when we cling to what we want, what we're comfortable with, when we cling to what makes me, what I feel good about, when we cling to what I think is right and what I think is wrong, when we cling to those things, then we've drastically limited what we can know of God and experience of God. Wow. Wow. What I'm leading you into is what God's all over me about. And I've been walking with the Lord for 35 years. Well, I've been walking for 35 years. How much of it was walking with him, I don't know. <laughs> and he's causing me to re-examine my life and my attitude towards his word. And I love his word. I read it. I spend a lot of time in it every day, meditating on it. But what he's challenging me with, that's not enough. Because there's scriptures in there you don't like to read. Because they make, me, they make, you can do what you're, they make me feel uncomfortable. And the only reason they make me feel uncomfortable is I'm not doing them. I'm not doing them because I don't want them. I remember one time in prayer, Lord, I was torn out. All I want to do for you, Lord, I want to obey you. And, I, and he said, what's stopping you? If you want to and I want you to, why don't you? And what I realized, I didn't want him quite as much as I thought I did. <laughs> I want to, I want to want to. And I want that to be enough. See, I've kind of had the attitude most of my walk with the Lord that, that my intentions are, are good, and therefore God looks at the intentions of the heart. After all, doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't measure us by the outside, but He, he looks at our heart? We take that totally out of context. That comes out of the story where, where God was choosing David to be the next king. And in Samuel was looking at them for their qualifications of his other brothers that were older, bigger, stronger. 
And God says, I don't look at the outside, I look at the inside. He wasn't looking at that to accept David's intentions. He was looking at his heart towards God to choose him to be king. What are you building your life on? When, you want it, when, when God's word says one thing and you don't want to do it, what do you do? There's another way this comes up. See, some of this is obvious. God commands certain things and we say yes or no. That's the only, there's only two responses to God's commandments. Yes or no. There's no middle ground. But one of the ways we try to avoid the full authority of his word is to come up with a third alternative. A great story of that is in, I think it's 1 Samuel 16, wherever it is, where, where God has commanded Saul through the, through the prophet Samuel to utterly destroy the Amalekites, their king, and everything. Saul goes out and they capture them and they destroy almost all of them. But they keep the king. And they keep some of the best sheep. And Samuel shows up the next day and said, did you do what God commanded you? Yes! I completely obeyed the Lord's commandment. He said, well, I hear some noise over here. It's the bleeding of sheep. Oh, 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 oh. Those are the best of the sheep. And the people... Of course, I'm king. But the people decided to keep those so that they could offer those to God as a sacrifice. And he says, well, what about the king? Well, we've saved him. And he says, bring him out. And this is where that famous verse comes in which sometimes we misunderstand because Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. And rebellion, which is lawlessness, is as the sin of witchcraft. So when we rebel against God, when we, we, we don't accept His word, for is as if the sin of witchcraft. And I used to think that that verse means, well, it's better to obey God than to perform some sacrifice to make up for my disobedience. That's not what he's talking about there. I mean, be true. But sacrifice is what they chose to do, use the sheep for. God's commandment was to destroy everything. They chose to keep the sheep. Now, whether this is really what they were going to do or not, I don't know. But let's take them at face value. What they said is, well, what we decided a better thing to do was to offer these sheep as a sacrifice to God. What God said, I'm telling you, destroy them. What's God saying? It's better for you to obey me than do something you think is good for me. Same principle as Jesus is talking about. Because here's the under... This is what's really at issue here. What's really under this is do we really have a revelation of who God really is? And I can't tell you the times I've taught that verse, taught that story. But early this year, I was going through and slowly meditating on it. It suddenly hit me what Saul's attitude was. And that's what I began to look at myself. Saul's attitude is when God tells us to do something, and then I look at what he tells me to do and decide what I'm going to do, I'm going to think for myself, is that a good idea? So it's kind of like God who's a lot smarter than we are and knows a lot more than we do, together with us are together trying to come up with the right thing to do. So God says to Saul, utterly destroy them. 
Saul comes back and says, well, that was good. That's a good. We, we, almost, we did most of that, but we had a better idea. Which implies his underlying attitude is, God, great suggestion, great idea. We're going to follow what you want. But we have something to add to this. We see what you're trying to do. And therefore, what we're going to do is we, we want to do this even better than your idea. And all God ever wants is obedience. Why? Because he, first of all, he always knows what's best. But it's even more than that. It's the underlying attitude of who he is. Yeah, he's great, he's strong, he's powerful. See, you can believe all that and worship him for all that and miss this. By your images, he's smarter, stronger. That's kind of what Job went through. This isn't fair. I mean, you know, I, don't, I can't take you to court. There's no daysman, there's no judge to judge between us. That's an attitude Job had in his heart that God was bringing out. How dare he say about God? Because this is how God answers him. God says, I love it, because he has Elihu doing it. I see it as a courtroom scene. He has a, you know, and he's Elihu representing him, asking questions. Finally, God says, hey, get out of it, boy. <laughs> I want to stand up like a man because I want to answer you. And he starts, where were you? As if Job's attitude is, yes, you're God, I worship you, you bless me, but we're, 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 I have some rights here in this courtroom. See, the reason you want to bring somebody to court is your rights have been violated. So Job was attitude in his heart is, although I've been good in your sight, I've done all this and you bless me, somewhere there's something unfair here about you, and I'm upset because you're God, I can't bring you into court to get my rights corrected. And what we've got to understand is He's God and we have no rights. In fact, the rights we have, I don't want. Because I don't want what I'm entitled to. And neither do you. This is the whole thing Paul talks about in Romans. When he talks about, you know, how do you say, people say, well, how did God, God harden Pharaoh's heart? And it was unfair for God to bless uh, Isaac and not Esau. That was unfair. And people misunderstand his answer. He's not saying God did that because he was trying to harden. He's saying, who are you to question, listen carefully, the mercy of God? Because mercy by its very nature is not giving you what you deserve. Jonah was upset. He didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach because he was concerned, he was afraid God might forgive them. And they were so evil, they didn't, listen carefully, they didn't deserve to be forgiven. So when God forgave him, he went out and pouted outside the city. God raises his plan up, which Job, I mean, which, which, which Jonah fell in love with, and then the plant dies, and Jonah's heart's grieved, and God speaks to him and says, you care much more about this plant than 600,000 people that were going to die eternally, and they're animals. Why? Because Jonah began to think that some of what his standing before God was was based on himself a little bit. And God has to get that out of us because it interferes with grace. We get the attitude that somehow we've deserved some of this grace. No, they're the opposite of each other. You don't want what you deserve. 
That's why Jesus came. But we can't receive the fullness of the grace and the fullness of the love until we really see who God is and what our rebellion has done to him, what that means to God. And the underlying attitude of who God is, well, I know you're smart, I know you're strong, and you know, you're just infinitely stronger than I am, and there's nothing I can do. I can't even obey your commandments because I'm so weak. When God says, you can do this. So what we do is we take God's word and we begin to water down. We begin, we'll read it, we'll speak it, but in our mind we begin to translate it. Well, he can't really mean that. He can't really expect that of me. Then his word's not the truth. Well, it's too harsh. Well, that's why Jesus came, to pay for that. But you can't see what he's paid for if you think somehow you didn't, don't deserve that judgment by his righteousness. So this is good news. It's God wanting to show us how much he loves us. So it means, what does it mean that the word is the authority in my life? First of all, it's not what I do, it's not whether I do or don't do something. It's the underlying attitude. Because the people Jesus is talking to in Matthew 7, they were doing things for him. But what Jesus was getting at is the root of the sin was the underlying attitude towards who he is and towards who God is. That's the issue to God. So it's not, have I been obedient today or not been obedient today? You're obedient or not obedient based on your image of God and who he is. So how is that reflected? What does it mean when it's the authority of my life? Well, we've, we've covered this to some degree, but I'll just go through some things. And again, we're starting to post these notes on the website under this series. Well, it means that God is who He says He is, not who I want Him to be. I'll show you how that goes to an extreme. Because we live in an age of grace and grace that's pushed beyond what the Scriptures say about it. There's no limit to God's grace. But what we've then done is taken grace, pulled it out of the Bible, and made it into what we want it to be, which means we've got to make God into what He wants Him to be. So it's gone to such an extreme that there are people out there teaching that there is no hell. Why? Because if God is absolutely love, how can a God who is absolutely love ever really send anybody to a place of eternal damnation? So here's what they say. Well, that means it's not really exist, but, but obviously the Bible says, so. well, he's doing that as an incentive to get people to come to him, but it's not really there, which means he lied to us. So that's taking God's word and clear what it clearly says and saying, well, it can't really mean that because God is love and therefore be, that's because, now listen carefully, because that, so what I do is I take what the word says and based on what I understand that means, I reinterpret it to what I think it must mean. Which means I'm reforming the word, which means it's no longer God's word, it's now mine. Over at the end of Exodus chapter 20, after God's given the law to Moses on the mountain, God gives them what's called the law of the altar. He says, if you're going to worship me, and we talked about this early in worship, if you're going to worship me, then the only way you can worship me is on dirt, on the ground. You can worship me on altars made of stone, but not if you've cut it at all. 
Why? Because who made the dirt? God did. Who made the stone? God did. So he says, you can worship me where the foundation of your worship, of what you're standing on, is something I made. But the moment you take that stone and you cut it, you've taken something I made and you've begun to refashion it by your skill to your design with your tools. And the word he uses when you've done that, you've profaned my altar. Profane means you've taken something that's of me and you've added some of you to it. I won't accept that worship, he says. Because you're worshiping in part on something you've contributed to this. Part of your foundation for your worship is something you've brought to this that you've added to this. I am the Lord, what he said at the beginning of that chapter, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, anything that represents me, because then it's something you've made. And we would not do that. We would not go build idols, I hope you wouldn't, and put them in your backyard or your front yard on your dashboard. But we do it in other ways. We take his word and we change it into what we want it to be or what we think it must mean because I can't possibly... See, then the word can't confront me. And it's like this, and I'll end with this. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but this is, this, I want, this is where I really feel God wants us to go. If you ever had something like appendicitis or maybe a boil or something where it's going to require the doctor to cut something to take it out. We don't like to have that done. I don't want my body cut any more than you want your body's cut, but there's sometimes it's necessary for them to cut that body to get out that boil or get out that growth or get out whatever it is so that you can heal up and be healthy. So it's kind of like going to the doctor and saying, look, I need to have this removed. And the doctor says, yeah, I want to remove it. And he goes and pulls out a scalpel. And you look at that thing, and it's made of steel, and it's solid and it's sharp. And you say, I don't want you to touch me with that. I brought this, and you pull out a rubber knife. (laughs) And you hand him a rubber knife and say, this is going to feel a lot easier. This is going to be a lot more comfortable. Well, the reason you're laughing is because it won't do it. You'll feel good, but you'll still have the boil or the ruptured appendix or whatever it is. Because you see, a rubber knife, when it presses against your flesh, it's soft, it doesn't hurt, and it bends under the pressure. Listen to me. You are more solid than the rubber in the knife. So the rubber has to give way to you. And when we don't accept God's Word as the ultimate authority, then when the Word tries to press against us to bring life or correction or faith, because you can't pick and choose. It's all in one category or another. 
when it begins to press against you to do that, if it's what you've made it to be, you're, you're stronger than that word, and it's like that rubber knife. It's trying to do a job in you, but it just bends, and you stay the way you are and don't change. God's word is what he's chosen to reveal to us who he is, why we need Christ, what Christ has done for us, and who we are, and all that God has before us. And until that word becomes the foundation of our life, and it becomes the foundation when it is the standard by which I decide everything, whether I like it or don't like it, whatever the cost may mean, then God can begin to build our law into our lives the strength, the stability that not only do you and I need, but he needs the church to be. Paul, in one of the letters to Timothy, calls the church the pillar of truth. And we're living in an age of darkness. We're living in an age of confusion. We're living in an age of deception. And the world desperately needs truth to stand as a pillar and as a beacon of light. And that's got to come out of us, but it can't come out of us. He can't come out of us if we're blowing in the wind and we're changing with the latest doctrine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, I didn't come to you with, in, in words of in deceit, deceitful adulteration of the gospel. I didn't adulterate the gospel. I didn't alter the gospel. But I came and spoke to you the truth, and it was the truth that changed them. It's the truth that will change us. But only as we accept it as it is and not try to change it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's a lot to absorb, but we trust your precious Holy Spirit if you've caused to live in us, who is the Spirit of truth, to begin to open our eyes and take us on this journey of examining what is the foundation of our lives. To what extent Father, does your word have, what access does your word have into our lives where we really live it, down deep inside where, where there's things we just don't want to do, but your word says to do them, where the things your word says don't do and we just want to do them. And Lord, open our eyes to see the truth. Lord, do this as a foundation for opening our eyes to truly appreciate the grace, the real grace that's been given to us in Christ Jesus the grace that will stir in us a deeper love for you, the grace that will stir in us a deeper passion to be pleasing to you, a deeper passion and love for you. Let us trust in your ways, Father, not in our ways. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name.